You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're sharing an interview that Tom Vanderark recently had with Curtis Ogden, Senior Associate at the Interaction Institute for Social Change, or IISC, about the power of networks. The IISC works with organizations, communities, and networks to build their capacity for more effective, equitable, and inclusive social change, harnessing the power of collaboration within the social sector to create a just and sustainable world. Let's listen in as Curtis shares more background with Tom on how this organization began. Curtis Ogden, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. Curtis, I want to start with a quote from uh, Tony Morrison. You've got to keep asserting the complexity and originality of life and the multiplicity of it and the facets of it. What, what does that quote mean to you? Well, it's a great, uh, a great opening question, and thanks for uh, invoking Tony Morrison's spirit in this. Well, for me, uh, you know, so much about the work that I do, uh, my colleagues do at the Interaction Institute for Social Change around supporting uh, social change efforts is about acknowledging the real complexity when we're talking about uh, social change, which uh, is both difficult, but I also think beautiful uh, in terms of looking at uh, the diversity, the complexity, the intricacy of life. And so rather than uh, treating it as if it is simple or even just complicated, I think taking a bold step into the complex is, is really what we need to do so that we can see more clearly uh, and welcome the challenges and also adjust our, 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 our expectations and our approach accordingly. When we enter into the world of complexity and living systems, I think it requires a different kind of mindset and approach than when we think about the world as being a machine or uh, entertaining, uh, entertaining mechanical approaches to change. Curtis, what is the Interaction Institute for Social Change? The Interaction Institute for Social Change is a, uh, we're a nonprofit consulting uh, and capacity building firm. And we've been around for uh, about 25 years. Um, we were founded back in 1992 by Interaction Associates, which is a, a for-profit consulting firm, and it was really meant to be an expression of their commitment to social justice uh, and to bring a lot of the collaborative methods that they'd pioneered into the social sectors. And so over the past uh, quarter of a, of a century, we've grown into a, a network, still a relatively small staff, but a a bigger network of affiliates uh, that worked have worked now with thousands of, of social change leaders, organizations, coalitions, and networks to boost and amplify their efforts and impact, uh, and specifically doing that uh, by building their collaborative capacity, their collaborative will and skill uh, through training, through facilitation, and through ongoing sort of longer-term consulting and in coaching, and I guess one other important thing to mention is that you know we do not come to this work uh, with any semblance of neutrality. That we we take a stand on the progressive social ch uh, social change side of things, um, and along with that, we've developed a, a lens through which we strive to build and facilitate capacity uh, for and really as social change. Um, and that lens features three core facets. One is a focus on power uh, and striving to understand and work with different types of power and power dynamics in the direction of greater inclusion and equity. Another facet is networks and really seeing these more vast and interconnected uh, bodies, if you will, as being the, the unit of change rather than individuals or individual organizations. 
and I know that's what we're we're here to talk mostly about. And then uh, love, uh, the L word, uh, and seeing love as a, a force for social transformation, which you know we might boil down to um, the importance of maintaining fundamental regard for one another's full humanity to do the work of social change. So what exactly does any of this have to do with education? Actually, quite a bit. Tom and Curtis discuss the connection and importance of networks and learning. Let's talk about networks and, and learning, networks and in, in education more broadly. But when you think about networks, what, what do they have to do with learning? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I mean, we we learn uh, and we innovate through networks. We we learn and innovate through our connections and relationships, and and what flows through those connections and relationships, whether those are formal or or, or informal. So networks have uh, everything to do with learning. Um, and, and and to be clear, networks are not just these broad, expansive. Uh, vast things, though they, they certainly are those, and, and uh, certainly our attention is more focused on those than ever through these powerful communications tools we now have. Uh, but, you know, network, such as it is, is also about tending to uh, the quality of the more immediate and intimate connections between those elements in a network or the nodes, uh, looking at the quality of relationship and, and what that quality can help uh, facilitate. So one of my, my favorite adages comes out of network theory uh, and for looking at things through a network lens is connection changes what's connected. Um, so that is new and different kinds and qualities of connections and relationship can yield new possibilities, uh, including access, understanding, resilience, adaptability, and innovation. So uh, to me, connections fundamental to learning, but not just learning, to health, to prosperity, to, to life itself. We are particularly interested in networks in part because we find that personalized learning is is really promising. The potential for each person to have a unique pathway uh, that leverages, that uh, takes advantage of their prior knowledge and of their interest. Uh, but we recognize that supporting and building these personalized pathways is just enormously complex. And we're hoping that networks can help encourage the development of personalized learning solutions and then make those more widely available. Uh, Mm. Is that a subject that you've uh, thought about? Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely do think that networks are a part of the, you know, the so called education solution in part because networks have always been a part of education and learning and presumably will continue to be. Uh, but I think the the central question is what kind and quality of networks do we need going forward, right. giving, giving changing context and what has always been limitations on the existing system and really for whom the, you know, the dominant education system has, has worked and for whom it has not. Um, so a lot of this comes down to, I think, you know, context and, you know, the particular goals and aspirations that we hold. Uh, but, you know, others, others have said some variation of the following, that we're leaving behind uh, sort of this obsession and preoccupation with, or, or maybe it's the expectation of control and prediction, uh, and also leaving behind a, a focus on uh, the notion of the autonomous, heroic individual and beginning to appreciate uh, more and more the importance of uh, 
interconnectedness, social processes, interdependence, um, and in this increasingly complex, interconnected, and seemingly uncertain world, more people understand and directly experience that you can never be fully prepared in advance for much. Um, so right. create creative learning is becoming really the baseline kind of fundamental activity. Uh, and along with that is uh, what a writer and digital strategist uh, Esko Kilpie has called um, interactive competence. So that is to survive and thrive, we need to be able, uh, we, need, we need to be deft at interaction and to navigating uh, networks, and in particular networks that are much more intricate, much more diverse, uh, much more robust. And as we definitely engage with those, uh, uh, those networks, facilitating, yes, learning, uh, but through exploration, discovery, collective intelligence, and, and uh, informed uh, responsiveness. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot in there that we could uh, unpack. I think it's, it comes down to the network structures uh, that we're looking to evolve, develop, tap into, and then the skills we need to equip young people with to engage and, and leverage those. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're talking about networks with Curtis Ogden, Senior Associate at the Interaction Institute for Social Change. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out similar episodes from network leaders on our iTunes and SoundCloud channels, including Season 1, Episode 23, the podcast titled New Tech Network, Making the Nation Proud of Its Public Schools, Season 1, Episode 35, where we chat with Mike Feinberg on opening great new schools, and our interview in Season 1, Episode 7, with the leadership team from Spark Schools about their blended learning model that's serving low-income students in South Africa. Let's return to this podcast, where Tom and Curtis chat about the history of networks and education. So in American public education, we now have a about a 25-year history of networks, many of them formed as voluntary networks of schools and some formed as charter networks or managed networks. Those managed networks, I often call them a tight network because they were had a really well-defined school model and very tight management control. Many of them had a philosophy of no excuses, uh, so very high expectations for uh, students and sort of a scripted approach to learning. Uh, the good news was they produced relatively high fidelity of action and, and consistently strong results, but across a, a narrow uh, a set of measures. What's your reaction to those as examples of networks? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, uh, so thinking about those as as tight networks, meaning more tightly controlled, perhaps centralized, where you've got uh, more one-way communication. Uh, right. You know, a network that's dominated by a hub that has a certain uh, methodology or ideology. I mean, there certainly is a place for tight networks. They represent one form of legitimate network. Um, and whether they are successful, and you can't see me doing air quotes right now, but whether they're successful, I think comes down to uh, you know overall context, the goals, and really the the uh, the ultimate result, and also how long term we're thinking about those results. Um, so I you know I'll say I personally am not a big fan of a one size fits all kind of solution. Right. Uh, and given the uncertainty we face and the pace of change, I think being loyal to one particular model is is less important than learning how to learn and adapt. Uh, and so maybe that is a model. I'm not sure. Um, 
because otherwise I think, uh, you know, loyalty to one particular model smacks of being ideological and not necessarily strategic or smart. I think tight networks do have a place and work well in, in certain cases to create some semblance of stability and coherence. And we talk about hub and spoke uh, networks, which may be a phase that a network goes through to begin to create some some coherent stability, uh, or they may uh, you know, work in situations where there's already some overall context of order and predictability, but of course we're experiencing that that is less and less the case. So the concern is that these you know, tight networks and tight structures become overly rigid, controlling, and, and closed uh, in such a way that they're actually less responsive to changing conditions. They're more focused on uh, you know, this, this, this approach and perhaps less cognizant of whether it is still uh, relevant um, to changing circumstances. So you know, looking at this from a, a developmental or evo uh, evolutionary standpoint, um, that can lead living systems, social systems to irrelevance and, and death. Right. So, but the, uh, if we look at the alternative, kind of a loose network, it might be a set of design principles and people that feel affiliation to those design principles, we tend to see much broader distribution of outcomes in those loose networks. So it's a, an important trade-off. Yes, and I would say that it's, you know, it's never purely about hierarchy or, you know, or networks, that there is some interplay between those or between more structure and less structure. Uh, again, I run into people in this world who are, you know, uh, very adamant that everything we have to have is a very diffuse, decentralized network, and that's just not the case in all in all circumstances. Uh, that is not a, a smart structure for certain kinds of situations, and I think it also comes down to the capabilities of the people within that network then to navigate that structure and, and make it work. Uh, and I think there are important. Uh, mitigating structures that need to be in place. Um, you know, one of the the areas of research that I'm very interested in is the the extent to which networks can either exacerbate or address inequities. And I think there's good evidence to show that when uh, you know networks are unchecked, uh, that they just privilege the privileged uh, and can exacerbate uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. So, uh, you know. Whether that means putting in structures or rules or principles, uh, you know, decision-making protocol. Again, I think it comes down to what's our context, what's our goal, what's our starting point, where do we want to be, uh, and for whom at the end of the day, for whom and for what is this this network ultimately. Another popular topic on our blog and podcast lately has been platforms, and Tom and Curtis chat more about the similarities between networks and platforms here. We recently posted uh, a blog and podcast with Sangeet Chaudhry, the author of Platform Revolution. He's a big fan of platforms because they scale efficiently, they unlock sources of value, they create feed feedback loops, uh, they bring the outside in. Mm -hmm. There's some interesting similarities between platforms and networks. How, how do you think about the role of platforms? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would... Uh, and it's interesting in, in, in talking to peers in, in the field or those who think more about platforms in the business sector as opposed to, say, uh, people who are looking at platforms as uh, organizing tools, community organizing tools. We may get different kinds of, 
of answers and thoughts. But I would say networks in general terms are, you know, just collections of nodes and links, peoples or, and people or things that are connected. Uh, so looking at social networks, peer-to-peer connections. On that platforms, generally we talk about platforms, they are particular kinds of networks. Uh, you know, classically now we're talking about networks where you've got developers and in, 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 uh, users and these kind of virtual platforms, or we could be referring to these multifaceted feedback loops of a network that facilitate those kinds of things that you mentioned, connection, exchange, value creation. Um, so I would think about networks as being, uh, you know, the more general term and then uh, platforms as uh, focusing on a particular kind of network and um, functionality and, and, and value creation. So I, I, just to summarize it, I think the answer is it depends. When applying uh, platforms to networks, it may um, it may be really generative in, in nature, but it could also be uh, quite constrictive uh, if it's really compliance oriented. So it, it probably like other attributes of network management, it depends. Well, I would say not just if it's compliance oriented, but again, if it's if it's very one dimensional, if it's not designed to fundamentally cater to diversity and inclusivity. Uh, and, um, you know, the platform itself does not just uh, take care of this. There has to be some orientation and skill building around how to use these platforms. So, uh, you know, presumably there needs to be that kind of, uh, that kind of orientation and, and skill building. But again, I think it's, it's multiple modalities for being able to engage that do not just cater to one particular style or cultural perspective starting point. Curtis has written about regenerative networks in the past and shares more about what he means by this term. So regeneration is, is yeah, it's definitely a concept and a practice that I'm, I'm passionate about and dedicated to nurturing in my work as I support these social change networks. Uh, I mean, regeneration means renewal, revival, restoration, and uh, it's an aspect of all healthy living systems, including human communities. So since life is constantly evolving and changing, as this happens, organisms are asked to, in a sense, kind of remake themselves and respond accordingly, not just to preserve themselves, but also through their behavior to contribute to the health and a renewing capacity of the larger systems of which they're a part. So if you think, for example, about regenerative agricultures, uh, including permaculture, um, the emphasis is uh, engaging in practices that do not simply do less harm, but actually create greater ecological health for the larger system and its component parts or participants. Or you can think about this burgeoning practice of regenerative design that includes things like biomimicry that invite us to learn from nature and living systems and create greater synergy between our, our products, our cars, our buildings, and their wider context. Again, not just about doing less harm, but being in synergistic, healthy, uh, systemic, strengthening relationship. Um, and so the thing with all of these living systems is that they're built on network structures. Uh, and these the various fields that fall under um, what are called the energy network sciences are suggesting that are, there are certain qualities found in healthy networks of all kinds that underpin healthy systems. So a, a regenerative network is a network that embodies these principles so that the, the, the network itself is resilient and contributes to greater systemic health. Uh, so one of my mentors in this area is Sally Gurner. She's a, a scientific advisor to the Capital Institute, 
uh, and she's a colleague of mine in something I participate in called the Research Alliance for Regenerative Economics. And what both the Capital Institute and the Research Alliance for Regenerative Economics are looking at is how we can create economic models and structures and approaches that end our devastatingly extractive behaviors on ecosystems and human communities in the name of economic development and, and prosperity. So what Sally likes to say is that long-term human prosperity, and she's defining prosperity here very broadly, and that includes being learned and educated, is largely dependent upon these healthy networks. And these are defined by diversity and intricacy and robust flows of a variety of, of resources. So in my conversations with Sally and other members of, of uh, the Alliance, we've been developing and playing with a list of design principles for for, for these networks um, that you can think of maybe as indicators of human factors in, in healthy regenerative networks. And so these are things like distribution of power, uh, information flow and transparency, uh, the degree to which the, uh, the network itself is prone to self-organize as opposed to waiting for somebody else to say it's okay, um, you know, diversity, uh, creativity, um, and one that I'm playing with, which is this notion of, of sort of measuring uh, uh, love or caring in human systems, which become part of the glue. And I think that that contributes to people wanting to be generous and magnanimous with one another that, that creates resilience in networks. It takes a real intentionality to create a culture where those practices are valued and frequent. Absolutely. Which is, you know, why I think there's there's a there's a kind of tending to the network that's that's necessary. So this is something that I emphasize with with all of the networks that I support. There has to be a real culture, an, in, an intentionally built culture um, that is about preserving the space where people are encouraged uh, to do those kinds of things and are rewarded for doing them, um, for being generous, for uh, exercising reciprocity. Um, I like to think about that 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 core function as being about network stewardship or network gardening, just as we want to till the soil in our gardens so that things will take root and ultimately, you know, self-organize on their own as living systems want to do. But they will need, you know, at the early stage of the garden, they they need some kind of staging and support and setting of the stage. And so, you know, we don't want to assume that things will just happen if we give them the space to. Sometimes that happens. But often that kind of care and tending is what's required. Curtis Ogden, we really appreciate your work. It's It's been a beautiful and challenging description of how um, networks of schools could work together. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, really appreciating your work uh, and this podcast and the great questions and uh, certainly look forward to hearing, uh, you know, others' thoughts about these. Um, there's a a growing uh, group of practitioners out there thinking about uh, networks and you know how we can think through the lens of networks and act more accordingly um, to to get things moving. So always eager to learn from others. Curtis, where can listeners go to learn more? Well, you can certainly go to uh, the Interaction Institute for Social Change website, uh, www.interactioninstitute.org. Uh, you can uh, go to our blog. I'm one of the main bloggers on on our, our blog and weigh in quite a bit on uh, networks. 
you can also tune in uh, to my Twitter feed, which is at Curtis Ogden, uh, and also check us out on, on Facebook, Interaction Institute for Social Change. Curtis Ogden, thanks for being on the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks to Curtis Ogden for speaking with us today and to Tom Vander Ark for another great interview. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat signing off.